Hello and welcome to Marketing Connected. In the lead up to the Digital Marketing Asia 2020 virtual conference in November, we will be chatting with our conference speakers on specific issues in the world of marketing, from digital transformation to customer experience and ad fraud, among others. Join us over the next few weeks as we unravel the ins and outs of digital marketing and hear from industry players on how you can jumpstart your journey. Today's guest is Wayne Wong, VP of Sales Asia Pacific at Selling Simplified, who has over a decade of experience in sales. He speaks to our original editor, Rizwana Manjor, on the challenges clients in the region face, the importance of finding vendors with clean data, and the 80-20 rule. Thanks for joining us, Wayne. How are you? Very good, very good. Tell us a little bit about what you do. So I am uh, currently representing Selling Simplified Group as the VP of Sales in APEC. So uh, our company actually do a lot of B2B lead generation from there. So I have over 15 years experience in B2B marketing. So I think that uh, over the 15 years experience, I have the privilege to uh, be part of some of the global leading technology publisher to put together plans for marketeer in terms of their B2B lead generation. And to date, I have actually successfully planned and executed over 4,000 uh, B2B marketing campaign for over 300 uh, marketeer or 300 advertiser. Wayne, share with us a little bit about Selling Simplified and when the company started up here in Asia Pacific. Who are some of your clients? So Selling Simplified Group, or in short, SSG, is a global B2B marketing as a service company. So we actually specialize on B2B lead generation. And I think that they deliberately make a pause between B2B and lead generation because they are two different, very distinctive portfolio that we have. We have a very rich first-party data of B2B audiences. And from there, we're able to empower our advertiser to do lead generation or generate leads and prospect for them. So back to your question, we are a US first company. So we started in 2012 in US. So since then, we actually expanded our gold footprint across the world. In Singapore, more specifically, we started our Singapore office in 2016. And fast forward to today, we actually have uh, multiple offices around the APEC region, including Australia, Hong Kong, India, Korea, New Zealand, Singapore, and Vietnam. So back to your question about our, uh, most of our campaign, our client. So some of the notable clients that we have include Amazon Web Services, mm-hmm. Citrix, Dell, Equinix, IBM, Intel, Oracle, and SAP. Wow. So I would say that we are pretty focused on the B2B in the technology space. Wow, those are some really big names. As you mentioned, um, you started up here in Asia about four years ago. And I'm sure you must have seen some challenges clients were facing in Asia, COVID aside, um, that made you wanted to start your operations here. What are some of the big pain points that you noticed? Yes, 100%. I am so glad that you asked the question, Raswana. I think that uh, if I can narrow into just Asia-Pacific, uh, with our day-to-day conversation with marketeer, we're always uncovering pain points. So we want to ach- make sure that we achieve their KPI, which is the, the main objective of uh, Selling Certified Group. So I believe that there are three main challenges that uh, APEC marketeer face. Number one, not surprising, is all leads. I think that APEC marketeer is always uh, working alongside with their sales team to fill them with leads and drive them deeper into the marketing funnel. So yeah. I think I would, I would say the first challenges will be the leads. They need to fill their sales team with more leads. Yeah. And you know, sales team are always hungry. So that's part one. The part two of it will also be uh, a bit of a subset for part one leads because we know that uh, having a lead uh, without much intelligence 
actually mm. sometimes can be quite challenging to engage in a deeper conversation with the prospect. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, one of the challenges about the second challenges for for APEC marketeer is to understand the behavior, to understand the user journey for the lead even before they become a lead. Mm-hmm. So they want to know, make sure that they know the behavior, their um, online behavior in terms of their media consumption, so that they can actually feel and fit all this intelligence back to the sales team for a more uh, holistic perspective. And that probably will end off uh, the third challenges about I think there's a lack of effective platform for most some of the APEC marketeer to nurture and engage the lead. Wow. Because unlike B2C, B2B buying cycle can be a bit lengthy. I mean, if you're talking about the state-of-art uh, solution, uh, which costs millions of dollars, the buying cycle can stretch from, 12, from 6 to 12 months. So it's a really long cycle. So that's also, that's also very important to ensure that you have an effective platform to engage and nurture the leads so that they place you as a top of my choice when they're ready to make the purchase. So I think that the three, three part of it uh, net new leads, number one. Number two is uh, the user journey, the behavior of the leads. And third is to effective platform to nurture and engage the leads throughout the buying cycle. Thanks for summarizing that so well, Wayne. Um, so new leads, behavior and nurturing. Which part of the journey do you guys come in at? I suppose that, that we can actually adopt to all three. So one of our key strengths is to uncover net new leads for our, our, our customer. So uh, what we also do is that I think that the account-based marketing or ABM have starting to become a big word in a B2B uh, marketing plan. So we're a- able to uncover net new leads from a very strict uh, ABM list for customer. And we do also have our own uh, we are a data-driven kind of uh, um, campaign. So in order for any successful campaign, um, you definitely need very rich and accurate data. So I will say that uh, with the data that we have, with the uh, online uh, journey that we have for our leads, we can effectively not just engage and nurture the leads for our marketeer, but we also can showcase the user journey in terms of uh, each of the individual leads that content consumption before we pass them as a lead for the marketeer for a campaign. When you touched on some really pertinent challenges APEC marketers face, what are some of the data-related challenges you see that are unique to Asia? That's such a good question. I think that the, um, the leads part is quite universal. I think marketeer around the globe is always looking for the KPI to really fill their pipelines in terms of net new prospect. I will probably add on to say that the, the difference between APEC and US is probably the data because US, we know that they are 100% reliance on English content or English data. Yeah. But in APEC, things can be a bit complex. I mean, we're talking about a country like uh, Japan like Korea or even China, they are very reliant on the local language data. Absolutely. So I'll give you an instance. For Japan, uh, we know that Japanese, uh, as a layman, we know that it's just a native Japanese. But within Japan, Japanese itself, they actually have various types of writing. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about uh, katakana, hiragana, mm-hmm. as well as kanji. So I mean, uh, in terms of data, if you have uh, data that have uh, multiple uh, languages, to normalize the data, to make sense of the data and standardize the data in the system, can prove to be a bit more challenging. So I probably think that in terms of the challenges or the difference between APEC and the US, the language probably will be the main, the main draw for that. Wow, that's really so interesting. Um, so for a big global company with an Asia-wide footprint, the local language aspect must be quite a big challenge, isn't it? Correct, yep. So the good thing is that uh, I think uh, some of the uh, um, publisher or provider, they actually have normalized the data in English. Uh, but for us, we actually operate 100% based on the local language. So I think that uh, the fact that we do have a Korean office and we're looking to start the Japanese office and China office 
um, later part of this year after COVID, the pandemic situation ease out. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a testament that the, um, the data that we have uh, is not just about uh, first party data or accuracy. Mm-hmm. We're also talking about the local language data, which empower advertisers to actually have a, more, a bit more deeper in terms of uh, having um, the right set of data for their, for their campaign. That is great. More power to you guys. Um, would you say the, that the importance of localized data is a top of mind concern for marketers? So I think that the, one of the um, things, uh, I'll just give you an instant, maybe just a case study. So we do have a marketer that come to us and say that uh, my portfolio is Asia Pacific, mm. which includes Japan, Korea, and China. Mm. But the content that I, can, I, I have in my content library is are all English. It's all coming from our US counterpart, right? US marketing team develop content in English. What we observe is that uh, um, Japanese, Korean, and even um, Chinese, they don't really uh, read a lot of English content. I would say that majority of these uh, um, Japanese, Korean, and Chinese audience are still very heavily reliant on the local language content. So mm. I think one of the uh, learning that we do have is that if you have English content, one size don't fit all. That's where we struggle uh, or to get uh, um, the local uh, audience who rely on heavily on local language to consume English content. So for any con- con- campaign to work, uh, especially in Japan, Korea, and China, I think the main fundamental is to have the lo- local language content so that we can actually engage them because English content is just not, not going to work in this jails. Now, I want to talk about loyalty in the B2B space. There's a saying in the B2B space that some 80% of your business comes from 20% of your loyal customers. Is that a myth or is there any truth to it? I think that uh, they come out a lot when we talk about um, B2C uh, purchase. But for B2B, I think that yep, there's definitely a certain truth to it. I probably will add on a little bit, like I think 80% of the business will come from 20% of the top tier uh, accounts. Or top tier customer. When I mention 20% of top tier customer, it could be existing customer or it could be prospect that have high potential to it, which I think lead me nicely to the next point of ABM, account-based marketing. So I think that throughout the four years of uh, our presence in APAC, we observed that a lot of uh, marketeers that are embracing ABM, account-based marketing. They yep. spend a lot of time, they spend a lot of effort, they work very closely with their sales team to curate a list of uh, um, top tier accounts that potentially will give them 80% of the revenue. So this is the truth of it. Mm. But of course, uh, some of them can be their royal customer. Some of them can be customer for the other competitor. They just identify as a prospect to it. So you find that, uh, yep, uh, ABM is widely embraced by a lot of technology marketeers. And uh, that also explains the importance to make sure that uh, they generate leads and they actually penetrate through this 20% of the top tier customer, which ultimately will get them to the 80% of the revenue go to them. Does this belief on the 80-20 rule mean new user acquisition or customer acquisition isn't as important for B2B marketers? I would think that the net new, uh, net new user acquisition is always ongoing. Uh, one of the things which I want to highlight is that from our experience with B2B purchase, especially in large en- enterprises, uh, we know that IT purchase is done as a team. So even though we know that the CTO will be the final person to sign the check to implement the solution, but before he signed the check or she signed the check, there's always a constant uh, a research shortlisting, project shortlisting, evaluation and selection from the entire team. So I would say that uh, um, we are just not just, if we're talking about net new user acquisition, it's definitely very important because when we know the CTO of the company, we need to make sure that we uncover net new user on the entire team there is a, um, from the C-level to the director level 
to the manager level or even to the executive level, the end user who are doing the research to understand the pain point because ultimately we know it's more like a down to up approach where um, the, the bottom, the end user will be the one who have the pain point, who do the shortlisting and ultimately all the shortlisting will be passed on to the manager, director and ultimately to the C-level to make the purchase. So I think that, uh, yep, uncovering that new acquisition within, um, uh, within the, the account, within the specific account is always important. We will be taking a short break. If you would like to join us at Digital Marketing Asia 2020 as we dive into topics such as transformation, data and analytics and e-commerce, head to conferences.marketing-interactive.com slash digital-marketing-asia. How do you think COVID has impacted B2B marketer behavior? Do you think due to the pandemic, new lead acquisition has now come to the forefront for marketers as compared to in the past? Yeah, I think that the pandemic have I uh, have actually we have observed a few we have make a few observations from the pandemic uh, um, situation over the past six months. Mm. So we know that the pandemic, uh, not surprising, a lot of company is enforcing work from home arrangement, mm-hmm. which I believe that uh, most of us are doing right now. And uh, we also know that there is a limiting of face to face meeting as well as a uh, event interaction. Mm-hmm. Event is um, is difficult right now for all the country that we are talking about. Yeah. So with uh, um the you know well, if you do not need to commute to work you're working from home the, you you omit the face to face interaction we find that the uh, um the I B two B buyer have more time are spending more time online mm. so that is something that we observe we see a significant uh, increase in uh in B two B users spending their time online and consuming content and I think that it also make a reference to uh one of the study that we we have recently that seventy percent of the B two B buying process happens before a contact is made with a sales representative. Mm. We know that B2B users, they're sophisticated, they're smart, they're able to go online and go to the World Wide Web to get all the information they want, to download content, download white paper, and look, look for case study. Yeah. It's only when they have done their shortlisting, that's where they make a contact to um, some of the shortlisted vendor from there. So I think uh, back to your question about the pandemic have changed the B2B marketing mindset and budget. I would think that uh, all the more right now, a lot of uh, um, B2B marketeers, they're dubbing up in spending more investment, spending more time to engage their audience mm-hmm. online. So I think one of the key um, criteria or key observation that we make is that by embracing the pandemic situation, you, are, you need to create an IT library, uh, a library, a content library that yeah. holds all the content. And the main thing is to create high quality content, make it easily accessible and strategically placing it in front of the user when they are in their researching stage on there, when they're right mindset, that was we engage them, and that's where I can get um, the brands to the top of my choice when the buyer are making the purchase. This behavior you just described, Wayne, is similar to B2C consumers, isn't it? If I'm in the market um, to find a new gym membership, for example, I'm not going to simply call up the gyms and ask to speak to their representatives. Instead, I'll probably do my own research, head to their websites or social media channels, and only ask to speak to someone when I've narrowed down my choices. So I guess what I'm asking you is that, do you see a lot of overlap in B2B and B2C purchase behavior these days? I think that you have a great point as well, Roshwana. And I'll always be curious to know which gym that you have signed up with membership and I'll join in the gym. <laughs> but yep, I think that B2B and B2C buying process work very similarly. I mean, I'm a, a, apart from being a B2B audience myself, uh, I'm also a consumer. So I, buy, I do a lot of online shopping, especially during this period of time. 
So no surprising, uh, um, it's so easily accessible. I go to various sites to find out about uh, the pair of shoes or even the gym membership I love to go to. I want to read about reviews, about um, the, um, the gym goer, what is their feedback of the certain gym. So I think that uh, these are all so easily accessible uh, online. And I think that it sort of uh, put the power back to the consumer that we are able to equip ourselves with the good knowledge before even we talk to the salesperson. Because we know that when we pick up the phone and call a salesperson, likely the salesperson will try to push us an order. Yeah. So I think that B2B and B2C, very similar in that way. The only difference I would think is that the B2C um, purchase happen in the flash. Like we buy on emotion. Like mm. you see a gym membership that's going on discount. Yep, you embark it and you sign up for it in the next day. Mm. Uh, B2B buying cycle can be very lengthy. I think I mentioned earlier, it can come up to about 6 to 12 months if you're talking about a solution that worth millions of dollars. So a lot of research, a lot of planning have to be put into a very deep thought process to it. Oh. So while I think that the, uh, um, the, um, the buying behavior for B2B and B2C could be similar, I just find that in terms of engaging um, the, the audience for the purchase, B2C, pretty much like, you, know, you have the instant promo, you have the retargeting mechanism in play. B2B is a longer journey, it's a, it's a longer ballgame. That you need to continuous to engage, nurture the audience, make sure that your content is readily available. And that's where we'll get you across the line in terms of getting an order from um, the prospective buyer. So we spoke about um, behavioral changes amidst the pandemic, but how has the pandemic impacted B2B budgets? I probably can only speak to um, the campaign that we are working for our, our, our client. I know that the pandemic uh, has impacted a lot of business. Um, so I think that, uh, uh, you know, um, every day when we read the news, we read about business being impacted. Uh, the good thing about us, because we are fully uh, online, so we do B2B lead generation fully digital, fully online. Mm. So I would say that the impact on us is, um, is quite minimal. I would say that, uh, in fact, we find that our uh, revenue uh, for the company as a whole actually increases about 30% quarter mm. on quarter. So it's a good news for us, which also translates that um, B2B marketeer, because our revenue is from B2B marketeer campaign, have mm. increases. So instead of, I think a lot of a marketeer, they actually have a multiple um, journey to engage the audience. Not surprising, face-to-face -face event interaction is one of them. But when you talk about all the events being cancelled or being postponed, when uh, until the situation is, that's where a lot of budget from the event is put over to online. Mm. So we, we see that the, um, you know, uh, a lot of face-to-face -face event that have re required a lot of massive logistics is pushed on to online web webinar or webcast. So it's sort of an opportunity for us because we are the one who drive um, a readership or viewership for webcast. Mm. So I think that uh, at least on our part, we see actually an increment in terms of the budget for the global or if not for APEC in specifically, we see something like maybe about 30% of the increment in budget um, for, for campaigns. Wow, congratulations. I'm happy to hear that. It's always great to hear happy news in this difficult time. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how marketers can find partners with clean data sets how can they know how can marketers know that they are partnering up with the right firms um, with clean data rather than going for the cheapest offering in the market i think that the um, data is always the key because in order to power any successful campaign data is always the fundamental or the the pillar um, for all successful campaign so i'll say that uh, um, back to your question about uh, how marketer can uh, equip themselves to find the right partner I will probably uh, put a question back to the marketeer. So first, I, I will probably challenge the marketeer to first identify what type of data are they currently collecting? Because marketeer, sometimes, most of the time, you have an online uh, presence. 
and you have a form field page on your online for people to submit a request. So it's very important to know what kind of data are you actually collecting right now from the existing channel. The second part is that I will also challenge the marketeer to identify what type of data are they lacking. So based on the data that they collect online, if they need uh, enrichment, if they need to uncover net uh, new data from there, so what kind of data are they actually looking at? Are they looking for email addresses? Are they looking for um, uh, um, the user journey? So once they have, they know what data they have and what data they are lacking, that's where they are able to find a reliable uh, partner to actually enrich their data. So when we talk about uh, reliability of the partner, I think the main thing is about asking or challenging the data partner, where do they get the data? Because if they cannot answer where they get the data in one simple clean sentence, that's where I'll probably probe it further. Because in this market today, there are a lot of data out there. So not surprising. But we know that uh, when we categorize data, it's always first-party data, which is owned by the publisher, mm -hmm. second or third-party data, which means that you resell it to a reseller or you actually latch on certain um, a platform to, uh, to gain the data. First-party data is always the most valuable because it's the most, it's the source of truth. It's where um, it's owned by the publisher and it's based on the user input. When we talk about second or third party, we are moving further away from the proof, further away from the truth, and that's where accuracy will be massively impacted. So I think that the one advice which I'll give to marketeer when looking for a data partner, first, know what data you have, what data you're collecting. Second, identify what data you're lacking and you want to collect. And then third is to ask the partner where they actually get that data. If they can provide you with a satisfactory answer, that's where you can actually dip a bit further into the partnership of the data. Good points there, Wayne. You've been in the market a long time. So tell us, are there any red flags or telltale signs that a partner is unreliable, um, that you don't have to waste, you know, the next one hour listening to them and, and sitting through the meeting? 100%. I think that I'll probably reference one uh, um, massive announcement that Google had made earlier this year. So Google have announced that with effect with the start of 2022, uh, Google Chrome no longer allow third-party cookie. Oh. So I think it's just a privacy policy protection. So I think that a lot of data collection is from third-party cookie. So they're actually latching on certain behavior, making it something, and also using certain algorithm to actually build their, create their audience segment based on the data set that they have. So someone who go to a technology site doesn't mean that they're ready to buy a technology uh, solution. But most of these third-party cookies categorize them as a technology intender because they have a recent activity on technology. So I'll say that the one of the main thing is about, uh, first, if you want to know how reliable the partner is, ask them whether are they operating on first party, second or third party. And more importantly, you need to get a satisfactory answer on how they get the data. Because if the data source is not clear, it's blurry, that's where it's from a probably a massive red flag in terms of the data cleanliness that they have. For many marketers, data is important, but it's also somewhat intimidating. Often they're sitting on a on data mines, but face data paralysis. What is one tip that you have for marketers facing this problem? So I think that you also layer into my previous point. I think, yep, uh, if I can have one tip, is that uh, uh, if you think that your current uh, data that you're collecting is not uh, robust enough, definitely look for a reliable partner and a reliable partner Make sure that you're stringent in your selection. Ask about the origin and source of the data. And uh, it's only when they can provide you with a good answer and they are able to provide you with the data that they're lacking. I think that that's probably the main key for any of the marketeers to embrace um, data. So Wayne, tell us what you'll be speaking about at Digital Marketing Asia. 
I'll be speaking on data analytics. Yep, <laughs> I think that, uh, yep, quick, very interesting point in, 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 in terms of the user journey, yep. um, the user behavior. Um, so, yep, I definitely want a very interesting uh, panel, which I'm extremely excited. Yep, we're very excited to see you there, Wayne. And do you have any last words of advice for our audience? So I think that uh, pretty much cover most of the data point. Uh, I would think that uh, uh, if any of the audiences require any advice on B2B lead generation or even data cleanliness from the B2B perspective, just feel free to uh, um, to ping me and I'm more than happy to advise you and give my insights in terms of uh, what are the do's and don'ts. And uh, if I can leave with one last uh, bit more personal question, convenient to tell me which gym membership are you currently on? <laughs> I will text that to you, okay? <laughs> <laughs> True, leave it private. Thank you for listening to Marketing Connected and stay tuned for another Digital Marketing Asia 2020 episode next week. If you are interested in signing up for the upcoming Digital Marketing Asia 2020 virtual conference, click the link attached to the episode description or hit to www.marketing-interactive.com. We hope to see you there.